Hi guys and welcome to episode 8 of The Dreamer's Disease. My name is Alex and on each episode we'll hear the inspirational story of someone who's out in the world that's really following their passions. Uh, to start with, I'd really like to thank everyone who's listened so far, for those who tuned into the last episode on iTunes, subscribed, left nice reviews, everything has been very amazing for me and I, I appreciate all the support and listeners and, and everything you guys have given so far and I hope that you can continue to enjoy each episode as they come along. To find us on iTunes, all you need to do is search Dreamers Disease in the podcast app and we'll appear there. You can subscribe and listen to all the previous episodes um, up to date. You can also head over to SoundCloud, search The Dreamers Disease, all one word, and every episode will be up on there. And you can head to Instagram and search Dreamers Disease underscore podcast and follow the, the account we have there, which will be updating with an inspirational quote and some nice pictures on a daily basis so you can keep up to date day to day. Um, so, on this episode, I'm joined by Context, aka George, who is a rapper, but he's also a lecturer at universities in London. Um, so we had a, a lot of different things to talk about, and his his very honest approach to his work and what he's experienced in his career through both, you know, studying in university and also trying to make it as an artist uh, speaks volumes. And we spoke about you know how he started in music. Um, the process of, of being signed and the lessons he's learned from the music industry as well as the financial struggles and he was very honest about this and in, in terms of living in London and trying to uh, chase a career in music and the sort of financial struggles that he's had to and restraints he's had to live within during his time. He also speaks about the art of the hustle and the amount of work he had to put in to really get his music heard and out into the world um, and then on the flip side we spoke about his university work and what he does in on his courses, his, his teachings, etc. And uh, we spoke about the paper that he put together with a colleague of his about the link between mental health issues in the music industry and how the two work together and what his um, research showed. And the paper's called Can Music Make You Sick? So you can go and find that online if you want to find out more. With no further ado, let's dive straight in. Okay, so hello, I'm joined by Context, aka Dr. George Musgrave. Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. How are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Good, I'm very well. Thanks good. for joining me. No, not at all. Um, so to kick things off, can you tell us who you are, even though I've kind of just done that, mm -hmm. and a bit about what it is that you do? Okay. So yeah, so I'm George. Um, I guess I kind of do two things running at the same time, although one of them a bit more than the other now, but... So yeah, half of me is probably is context. So that's like, it's, I'm, I'm a rapper basically, but I'm, I'm signed to Sony. I make kind of like, uh, if you don't know, it's kind of like, people could compare it a lot to like Mike Skinner. It's kind of like lad, laddish rap music basically. And then, yeah, the other half of me is just George and I'm a university lecturer. So I lecture at Goldsmiths, University of London, and also at uh, University of Westminster. And I lecture on postgraduate courses at Westminster on the music business management MA. And I lecture in more general topics of like entrepreneurship and creative industries and creative practice at Goldsmiths. So I do kind of both those things together and kind of one, one feed, you know, each one feeds the other basically. Yeah, which is it's always good to tie kind of two things together mm. that you enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. So let's start briefly with the music mm -hmm. side of things yeah 
How did you get into that? Where did that start from? So that that was probably started when I when I, I moved out of home after do, after my A levels and in my gap year, which wasn't really a gap year because I was just living in Norwich in a really kind of nasty house. And um, I was working at Norwich Union in a call centre. And I'd just always really been into rap music. I used to really like, um, you know, I got like the Wu-Tang Forever album probably when I was like 12. And like I had, a, you know, I was just always into rap music basically. And then at the time it was just, I just had a lot to write about at that time really. Because when you're at school, you don't really have that much to write about. Or I, I didn't. All, all I did was skateboard really. And I was I was good really, and then when I moved out there and I was working like nine to five in an office and all that, I was like, oh, I've actually got like half interesting things to say about like the life that me and all my friends were leading, which was just cul-de-sacs and weatherspoons. Basically, that was our whole life, really. Yeah. Um, and I'd always been really, really into this kind of like at the anthropological bit of rap music. So I loved like the Mob Deep album, the Infamous, because it was so like evocative of a place and a time and a and a an experience so i thought well you know we've got an experience it just isn't particularly it's not in queensbridge but it's like it's, we're just in like normal you know just living normal jobs and doing normal things my mates were working in call centers and cafe nero and we were just going out and drinking and being larry and um we just had stuff to say really and then like it's also around the same time that uh, eight mile had come out and so we must have been like 19 or something yeah and um, they had these rap battles in Norwich because they it was like a military base area. Yeah. So there's lots of like Americans who were there who wanted to do rapping and stuff. And then we were like, oh, I could just enter that. And so that was probably the first thing I did really entering these little rap battles. Just, you know, thinking I was Eminem and stuff, you know. <laughs> and that was the first thing I really did, really. And then, um, yeah, just made some little EPs and stuff in Norwich. And that was really how I got, that's how I got started with it, really. Yeah. yeah with that. And... We'll kind of fast forward a little bit. You mm. mentioned that you got signed and still are signed. Mm. What happened in that gap between those rap battles to then mm. what year? What year was the rap battles and what year was it you got signed? So the rap battles must have been. Uh, it must have been like two thousand and six. Yeah, something like that. And then you got signed in. I got signed in two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, something like that. I mean, the big thing really that happened in that time was moving to London. That was yeah. the, that was the biggest thing ever. And like, in hindsight, really, moving to London is probably the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. And I didn't want to do it at the time at all. It was only because all I was doing was... I was obviously still at uni this whole time um, and was like pursuing... But, but, but was like fully pursuing music as in like, mm. this is going to be my life. This is how I'm yeah. going to live and make my money. And then... And where were you in uni? Was that in Norwich? So, yeah, I was at that, at that time when I had that... So... I started doing music basically like in my gap year just before I went to and my undergrad was at Cambridge and so I was at Cambridge for three years and then I was doing a master's in, in Norwich at UEA and then I started doing a PhD in Norwich at UEA as well and it was when I started my PhD which was 2011 2010 that my missus said oh well, let's move to London then if you yeah. want if you want to do music let's because also I was just being really like I'm quite like like emotionally um, emotionally obvious maybe that's the word you know and I was just being really mardy and grumpy and I didn't like living in Norwich at all it was just it was just really played out to me and I just wanted to be somewhere better and she didn't want to leave Norwich at all to be fair to her she just said let's just do it let's just move to London I was gutted to like leave Norwich in a lot of ways like, I cried like literally I was standing in our empty house and I was like I really don't want to move away from here because yeah. this is where I live you know but it was it was the best thing I ever did was move to London because yeah. it's just 
it's like a different planet here in the best way. I mean, you don't really, I, I, I'm not sure how well you know unless you're from somewhere that isn't like it. If you're not from London and you yeah. might come to London and, and it gives you what it needs to give you, it's just amazing, really. Because yeah. when I moved here, that's when I met my manager, um, who's Adrian, and he was managing. When I first met him, he was managing. Um, he was just managing Emily Sande and then me. And I was like, this is this is it. I was like, I'm golden here. I'm absolutely golden. I actually <laughs> remember when I very first met him, I met him in a, uh, it was actually the second time I met him. And he was like, which major record company do you want to be signed to? Yeah. And I was like, do you, do you think that can actually happen? And he was like, absolutely no doubt. He was like, there's yeah. no doubt that can happen. And I left the meeting and I was in Hammersmith. That's where I moved to. I lived in Hammersmith. And there was a massive billboard outside the front. I've actually got a photo of it on my phone that I can send to you because I took a photo of it immediately. It was yeah. a L'Oreal billboard outside the L'Oreal building and it said, believe in miracles. And I was like, ah, oh, this place is just too much. So anyway, I was like, that's, that's big. I mean, the long and short of it is, yeah, I got signed to Sony uh, like two years after that or maybe 18 months after that, I can't remember. And then I signed a record deal with a, a subsidiary of Atlantic Records. Yeah. Um, but I'm not signed with them anymore. I didn't get dropped. I dropped them. That's real talk. <laughs> I emailed them was like, this is just pointless being signed to you. Because they, they didn't really do much for me at the time. Well, they had, to be fair, they just had other priorities. I wasn't a big priority yeah. act. So I just said, what's the, what's the point of me being signed to you? Just, yeah. I might as well be out of a contract. Um, but I am still signed to Sony. So uh, that's the really abridged version of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you... Um, you mentioned the MTV thing, mm. but there was also a lot of buzz kind of online with the, you know, the hot blogs at the time mm -hmm. and the SBTVs mm. and you were getting plays on Radio 1 and 1 mm. Extra and Mr. Jam in particular was mm. um, a big fan calling you the Middle England Poet Laureate, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. Yeah, he did. Um, how was that? How did that, what was the kind of, what made, how did that make you feel? I mean, that was, that was everything I've been working towards, basically. I mean, the whole process of trying to even be on those blogs and to be on MTV and to be on One Extra and Radio One and all that was just an endless process of like cultivating relationships with people. Because when, like when I started doing that, so I was living in Norwich with no friends that worked in music. I had no contacts of anyone who worked in music. And all I did every day, hours and hours and hours every day, was email people and make friends with people. Yeah. That's all I did. I just sent them my music and said, look, even if you hate it, tell me what you think. Uh, you know, if you like him, if you share it around. And then I, re I remember once coming into the One Extra building in like 2010 and there was someone there and I was like, oh, hi, yeah, yeah, I'm contacting. She was like, everyone in this office knows who you are. And they were like, I was like, they were like, I've never met you. Like none of them have ever met you, but all mm. you do is email us all the time. I was yeah, like, yeah. yeah. But that's what that's all I did because that that was my only way to have an audience at that time because I remember thinking like around that time like gigs was coming out with like Walk in the Park and there was an interview with him on Westwood or something and they'd said like the way I'd built my buzz was local like it was in Peckham yeah. it was giving CDs out to people it was making my name known I didn't need the radio yeah I couldn't do that in Norwich because you can't make your name you can't make a big name there so the yeah. way I made my name big was through MTV and One Extra yeah. and Radio One that was my only way to do it. And it was just an endless, and I talk about it a lot in like the classes I teach as well, it was just an endless process of basically just being safe with people and just saying, mm. you know, maybe I'm, I might not be ready yet. I don't know what you think about this, but if you like it, play it. But they always did like it and they always did play yeah, it, so yeah. it was fortunate. But it was just being approachable with people and trying to be fair with people and yeah. um, just letting people know who I was and always being like really open and straight up about what I was doing. But it was like a process that probably took me like, long time five five years of, yeah. of, of five years of emailing 
yeah. before I moved to London. And then only then did I start meeting people in real life. You'd meet all these people and be like, oh, are you so-and-so? Oh, yeah, your friend. Well, it wasn't really Twitter so much. Like, oh, your friend's on Facebook or whatever. Yeah. Um, that was the process, really. It's just endless hours of networking, essentially. It was networking. It's just not networking the way that you think it is. Yeah. It's not going to the EMI party with a free bar and making a song and dance with yourself yeah. and friends and people up. It was literally just... Is cultivating relationships with yeah. people basically and saying I've got a story to tell do you want to help me tell it yeah. and that's all it is like a storytelling industry isn't it yeah massive. it's a storytelling and star creating industry mm. so that's what it's all about really so yeah. people want to help you tell your story if you've got an interesting one to tell yeah you know as much as this is like a storytelling music is a storytelling industry but it also tells its own story about itself and a lot of it is complete nonsense. Mm. So they'll tell you things like, upload your music to the BBC Introducing Upload and your life will change. Well, it won't. Because, you know, your journey isn't going and writing a song and putting your song on the Introducing Uploader and that's it. Mm. There is days and weeks and months and years of slog behind that song going on the Introducing yeah. Uploader and it's... But that's the story. That's yeah. a nice story. Oh, so and so uploaded their song one day and then two minutes later they were performing at Glastonbury and now their life's changed. It's yeah. like, it's not really real. That's not really how it happens because yeah. people like to gloss over eating beans on toast and not having a life. No one likes that story. Yeah. It, I always said even after it happened, like even if nothing happened now with the music in future, I would always have that story to hold on to of and the lessons that it shows you about what's possible and what you can do and how to treat people and yeah um yeah it was awesome and what were those lessons uh, like the importance of people yeah is a massive one i mean being being straight up and honest and just safe to people is just massive yeah and because you know all of these industries whatever it is all industries whatever you want to work in they're just people industries they're about recommendations and friendships and that's what it's all about really and that was always a thing that for me i always found really a really tough lesson to have because i was never really a people person yeah and i didn't yeah. really enjoy being around people i still don't really like strangers that yeah. much like I'll, I'll go over to my friend's house and there'll be like people that i don't know and i'll be like there's kind of too many strangers here i don't really like yeah, this. yeah. but you have to just put that to one side. That's in a way that was the blessing that I could conduct all this networking online. Yeah. So I didn't physically need to go and see these people. Yeah. Cause like there's one thing I can do is write nicely. I can yeah. be polite. So in a way that was a blessing really. And then by the time I actually moved to London and wasn't networking and meeting these people, well, I was older then. So then mm. I wasn't such a recluse. So yeah. by then I was all right. Um, the people one is a big one, I think. Um, I'll think of the others as we go through, yeah. I'm sure. Well, it's funny you say that because I've got this joke with my friends that I always say, well, you, you know I don't like people because mm. I'm the same. I, I can't be put in a room of essentially strangers and just go and talk to them about mm. anything and everything. I just, I feel really uncomfortable mm -hmm. doing it. Yeah. But, and I think people get the kind of wrong, wrong end of the stick with me and think that I'm this moody guy and quiet yeah. and whatever. But once people actually talk to me, I think they're generally like, quite surprised mm -hmm. by how kind of open I am and I just talk about what like I'm, I'm happy to talk about if you ask me a question about something I'll give you the answer I won't mm. you know skirt around it but the whole networking thing for me is like yeah I'm still working on that I think but it's massive you kind of have to in you any do. industry it's in, very in important absolutely anything and it's the thing is it's given me a lot of lessons that I like apply now the, the lessons I've learned from doing music are like lessons that I apply now like in my 
what I would call professional work. Yeah. I mean, the other thing it really t- tells you a lot as well is like about the importance of like the long term vision of what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, it's a really big one. And the thing is as well is that like, t- and another thing it, it really teaches you as well, which is like the massive one is like, it sounds so silly to say like hustling, you know, like people yeah, always yeah. use the term like hustling. Like rappers and like people in urban music ha- could have so much to teach so many people about hustling. Like, I mean, now in the world I'm in now of like, you know, of being an academic, you see some people and you're like you're not hustling yeah. you know like rappers hustle yeah. hard like they will go up to people and be like hey have you got any work going yeah. hey can I do some work for you hey let me do this they're yeah. in your face all the time in a kind of not like brazen but they they make themselves known yeah. and they get out there and they hustle stuff and that was really important that, that's a real big lesson from this music thing as well is like hustling and like maintaining visibility to people yeah. because you know life is like competitive and people forget about you and and you've got to keep yourself visible to people it's tiring it's really super super tiring Mm. and so at what point did you make the decision to transition from doing music almost full-time to going into education and teaching and what it is you do now at you know universities i mean it's kind of more um it was kind of more like a practical type decision. I mean, I can tell you this sort of story with it if you want with the bit that goes. Um, so when I did my undergrad, you're being funded. Mm. You're getting a student loan and you're a, you're an undergrad student at uni. You're not yeah. worried about what you're doing. And at that time, I didn't live... I lived with my girlfriend now and um, I was in halls at Cambridge in halls for three years. Yeah. And then I was living with her in our own place when I used to go, used to go home every other weekend. So then I could do music because I was basically a student the whole time. And then I did a master's. And for the master's, I was kind of being funded. So I had like a bursary from the uni. I had help from my mum. And I had, um, I'd had a car crash like years and years and years ago. So I had some whiplash money. So I was like, I can live off this for a year. I'm good. So I scraped through the master's year. And again, you're kind of doing music full time, even though you're not, but you kind of are. And then I would, then I did a PhD, which was fully funded. So they basically gave me a salary, not a good salary, but a salary, which I then lived off. And then, so I was at uni for like nine years. So then the year that my funding ran out for my PhD was the year I got signed. So I actually, the money probably hit my bank from Sony probably a month before my funding ran out from uni so I mean I was on edge massively the whole time waiting for that money because when my uni money ran out I had no money yeah so at that time I was living in Hammersmith I was paying one I was splitting 1200 pounds a month rent with my missus well my outgoings in Hammersmith I was paying 800 pounds a month to live there and I was my bursary was a thousand nine hundred and ninety or something and that was for, for two years that was yeah and that money was running out and I was like oh my god I won't be able to live when this runs out Hmm. so then I got signed and then got you know, what it's like three, four years salary in one go for somebody to have in your bank. I was like, right, I'm good. Yeah. So even though the funding had ended of my PhD, I still had a year to go. Yeah. And then they said to me, uh, I went actually went to drop out. So even though I only had a year left, I hadn't written anything. It's like 100,000 words, I hadn't written anything. Yeah. Because I've been doing music the whole time. Yeah. So I've kind of been doing full-time music, but I'm also, I've got some source of money the whole time because I've been being funded being at uni. And I just said to him, I'm going to drop out. And they just went, you can't drop out because you've left it too late. You'd have to pay all your money back if you dropped out. So I was like, oh my God. So so basically I just did music full time and knew that in one year I've got a 100,000 word document to give in and yeah. you've got a year to write it. Wow. So do it in your own time. Yeah. 
So that was like June of 2013. Yeah. So then I got signed and then I was full-time music. So I was like, right, I've got all this money in my bank. I'm moving to Warwick Avenue. I'm going to move to Little Venice and have this like stucco fronted house. And I'm, yeah. I'm out of control. I'm balling. I'm going to Paris. I'll take my missus to Paris. I owed her thousands of pounds. She'd been paying like all our rent for two years. Yeah. I was like, I'm good. I'm good here. But that money doesn't really go a long way. Like in London anyway, you know, it's not. And it, I just, I wouldn't say I lived madly at yeah, all. Yeah, I just, I lived the life of someone who'd been eating beans for for four years. Yeah, that's because wow. doing my masters, I used to live off. I used to live off. I got fifty pounds a week for my masters. Yeah, so that's why I lived off. Yeah, and then the whole time during my PhD, I had eight hundred pound a month outgoings, and I earned a thousand quid. Wow. So I had literally fifty pounds a week for four years. Wow. Which you could spend in one night in London. Yeah, exactly. So I used yeah, to go out and wow. withdraw out a tenner and say, this is my money for the night. So I used to buy bottles of Glens and Coke and I would make that and put it in my pocket. And yeah. then that, so wow. by that time, I was sick of being poor. Yeah. It's long. You know, having no money is super, super long. And the thing is, these people will tell you things like, oh yeah, like I'm doing a full-time music. It's like, right, but you live at home. It's kind of different. Like, you know, the, the biggest thing that people who live in, in, like in the Southeast, I reckon, don't get is you don't get how fortunate you are if you have a family home or somewhere that you can live within you know kicking distance of London yeah. where you don't have to pay any rent. Yeah. You've basically won the lottery in, in life because you can do whatever you want. Whereas I had to find a thousand pounds every month. There's no getting away from that. You can't be like, oh, I'm going to quit. I'm going to do music full time. Well, where's your money coming from? You yeah. can't live. The music doesn't give you any money. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Not in the initial. Not in the initial stages. Yeah. No. And even when I was signed, music didn't give yeah. me any money. What money did it give me? Like all my PRS money went to the publisher. It, it you know, it doesn't get you any money. Yeah. And and if you're at a real level, you know, there are people who are now getting money and they get five hundred quid for shows or a thousand quid booking fee. Great, mm. but I wasn't getting that. Yeah. So then my uni my publishing money ran out after probably like 18 months yeah and then i gave the phd in so i wrote you know i had like a hundred thousand words to write which i wrote in three months what did you write horrible it was on competition in music so it was well it was the phd was about uh, economics talks about what competition can deliver in a marketplace so how competition can be a means to an end to deliver something in a market whereas i was more interested in how competition was sort of psychologically experienced by producers so I wasn't interested in consumers. It was about producers. Yeah. And I did it on musicians. So it was about music, but it was really, it was about competition. It just happened to look at music, really. Yeah. Um, and so I gave it in and now my money's run out. So what are you going to do? So it was like at that point, and then I was like, right, well, you know, I need to earn at least a thousand pounds a month somehow from somewhere. Yeah. It's not a... There's nothing glamorous about that. It's like, yeah. that's that's the reality of it. But also combined with the fact that you know, my, my whole mission, like my, my identity in lots of ways has been the uni boy. Mm. Like my whole life has been about school. That's yeah. been my whole life. My, both my parents are teachers. My sister is a teacher. Now my missus is a teacher. School has been my whole life. Like mm. I've got a pit that, like my favorite ever picture that I've got at home is there's a picture of me, my little brother and my mum because my mum took me to Cambridge when I was five and said, oh, you're going to go here when you're older. Yeah. And then I've got the exact same picture taken in the same uh-huh. place like 20 years later when I graduated. Really? Like that's been my whole life. Yeah, so yeah. Um, when I left, I mean, even when I was like eight, my mum would be like, oh, you'll be a university professor when you're older. Yeah. That's, you're, you're kooky. That seems like something you'll do. Yeah. So that's all I really wanted to do. I mean, apart from doing music, music. that was all I could do and would ever want to do. Yeah. But, you know, 
it's another dimension to the story. But getting a job at a university is not like getting a job in yeah. you know Costa Coffee. Yeah. You know, it's seriously, seriously hard yeah. to get that. So then I had to th- put my music hat on, like the lessons I've learned from doing music into getting this university job. But that was the kind of transition through doing all of that. But uni was always in the background the whole time because, you know, you have to live. And there's there's a real issue that I have, like especially when people t- talk about these entrepreneurship things to like to younger people. Young it makes me feel really old, but like young younger people than me. Mm. And they say things like, "Yeah, yeah, just just do this, do this, start this company, just crack on, just do all this." Like, where do you live? Yeah. Like, you know, honestly, where's your home? Because I I remember people the whole time being like, "Oh, just leave that, man. Like, leave that. Don't, you don't want to do that uni stuff, man. Like, just crack on with this music the whole time." I was like where do you think my rent gets paid from? Like yeah, it's not, yeah. um, you know, and you s- certainly don't want to be doing these jobs that like fill in your days. You know, yeah. that's just tiresome. Yeah. I've done that. I've worked for Norwich Union in a call center and I'm not doing that again. Yeah. So no, I'm not going to leave everything I know because you've got to live. Mm. So you have to find that like balance of having one hand to feed the other type of thing. Yeah, of course. Which ties in nicely with, um, the paper that you wrote mm. on music and depression mm. and it was called can music make you sick mm-hmm. what were the key things that you found and how, how did you research it where did the research come from and what were the key things you found once you got that research and looked into it and mm. you know started to then write up the results so that paper would have been that's the first thing when i got a job as a lecturer that i did with my the, the she's called sally who runs the the course that I work on the MA at Westminster and she had had she's had this idea for like three years about looking at the links between music and mental health and was like applying for funding applying for funding and everyone was like no 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 not fast and then um, we got funding from um, this charity called Help Musicians who wanted to look at it and so we were basically trying to look at you know there's this whole myth of like, well, not the myth, but there's this kind of uh, argument of sort of the tortured artist. So, yeah. you know, um, and all musicians are mad and like this 27 Club and Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse and all yeah. this sort of stuff. And the, the argu- and then on the flip side of that, there's the argument that goes, well, music's sort of therapeutic for stress and for yeah. mental illness and it can cure, but, you know, it's used in sort of trauma therapies and all types of things. And we were more interested in seeing like the dark side of being a musician because it can't just be the case that all these people are having all these problems mm. and it was being dismissed in this kind of pathologizing, individualizing of people and saying, well, they're just crazy. Like musicians are all crazy, you know? Yeah. And I was like, right, well, maybe there's more to it really than this. So the cha- charity gave us the funding. So firstly, we did a survey. So we surveyed, we, we, we were hoping probably to get between 500 and 1,000 people and we got 2,211 people to wow. complete the survey, yeah. which is like amazing. So it's the biggest piece of research that's ever been done on this topic with a very general survey asking them about their experience of like mental disorders and then with like an open comment section. I mean, it was really broad. Yeah. And we got fairly even like um, men and women filling it out from like all over the UK and they would say was it just people that work within the music industry yeah the majority of them were musicians yeah but it was sort of music industry stakeholders i guess so there yeah. were some also like roadies techs people who worked yeah, in yeah, record yeah. companies but the, the majority of them were just were musicians and um the statistics were something like 
68% had said they've been experiencing depression, 71% they'd been experiencing anxiety, yeah. which is three times more than the general public, which was a figure we arrived at by comparing it to uh, Office for National Statistics data. Yeah. And then the next bit of the survey was that they said, we basically said, why? Like, why have you got anxiety or depression? And obviously for some of them, they'd had horrible things happen. They'd had childhood trauma or whatever it was. Mm. Were, but there were a lot for whom they said, it's this, it's this job that I do is yeah. what makes it awful. Or, or it was the only thing that makes me depressed is working in the music industry or the music industry is what kills me and all, all this stuff. Mm. And we were like, you know, the working conditions of working in music and even more generally like freelance are they, they're not good like they're just they're just really traumatic mm. you know, like emotionally traumatic so then we did the follow-up stage of the study which was we interviewed well in total 30 musicians from around the country so like belfast glasgow like all around the united kingdom yeah mainly london because it's where most of the musicians are but all mm. over the country even men and women all different genres from like opera to like hip-hop like heavy metal or jazz all sorts and then we also interviewed some record company executives and mental health service providers as well yeah. to find out the kinds of things that are out there for musicians. You know, we tried to speak to people at the Priory and that sort of stuff. In the survey, they were talking a lot about that the working conditions of working in music are, they're emotionally traumatic. So yeah. it's precarious. You don't know where your money's coming from. You find it difficult to trust the people that you work with as um there are specific issues relating to like women and equality in the workplace and all these types of things but basically it's not you know being a musician a lot of it sucks you have this kind of i call it like harold skimpole like harold skimpole's like this character in bleak house who like says he, he doesn't have any responsibilities and he doesn't want to like grow up ever so it's like i have this kind of perpetual harold skimpoleism where yeah. you become infantilized because you can't ever really be an adult you know, all your friends will be going on holiday and you'll be on your Facebook like, what is good? You know, social media makes it so much worse. You, yeah. You're never really growing up because you're postponing everything for this dream that you're doing. Yeah. You know, it's your finances are in complete disarray. There are a whole series of things that are specific to like a career in music, but they're in this findings that are coming out in a few months. So I don't, know, I don't really know how much I can say, but um, the long and short of it is it's that a creative career can be quite emotionally damaging yeah. and interpersonally taxing with other people. Yeah. And it's important, therefore, to acknowledge that um, it's important to have this conversation in a kind of straight up way. Like the, the example that we, we were talking about, it was, you know, no one would say that the modeling industry, like there's a high amount of um, eating disorders, psychological conditions in the fashion industry. Yeah. Now, no one makes an argument that goes, well, if you're a model, you obviously quite like people looking at you. You want people to see you in clothes. So the next step is you're probably quite vain, yeah. which means you've probably got more sensitivity to body issues than anybody else. So yeah. therefore, you're more likely to develop an eating disorder. Yeah. I mean, no one would say that because that is just outrageous. To yeah. That's an outrageous statement to make because they know that certain conditions of the fashion industry facilitate this horrible... Uh, you know, unhealthy self-awareness and focus, fixation on body image and stuff. So they say certain features of the fashion industry can contribute towards these psychological conditions. So we should try and mitigate it. And there was a whole thing in the 90s about fashion and eating disorders. Yeah. And so now they try and, I don't know, I don't know anything about the fashion industry, but there's a kind of rhetoric around at least acknowledging that that is a problem. Whereas in music, everyone goes, well, you like writing songs. You're probably more in tune with your emotions than other people. So because you're more in tune with your emotions, you're probably more likely to be depressed. So that, that's why you're all depressed. Yeah. Where people aren't doing 
what is happening in fashion, yeah. which is going, well, actually, maybe some stuff about music itself yeah, is making you ill. Yeah, they're not taking into account the various, you know, like like you've already spoken about before, mm. you know, disappointments, the letdowns, the mm. people not get back to you, the the knockbacks, the this, the that, the mm. endless list of things that can go wrong or against you or feel like it's That's going it. against you that can pile up and over a period of time, combining that with, as you've experienced, not having an income and, yeah. you know, it can all topple up on and just fall over at, at any point, really. And that, and it's it, more what we were doing is we were never saying, we weren't making a kind of direct causal thing of saying music makes people sick. That's it. Yeah. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not trained in being a psychologist. I'm not medically trained. Yeah. It's what we do is like cultural sociology. It's saying musicians in their own words told us this, this is our findings. And they feel that the conditions of the career that they work in yeah. is making them ill. Yeah. Now you might dispute whether or not it is or not, but it doesn't matter. That's how they feel. Mm. And so there needs to be at least a conversation around that of saying, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. Because whether it's, you know, hairdressers renting out their chairs who now are being called self-employed or whether it's Uber drivers or whether it's whatever, mm. this kind of gig economy is, you know, they're, they're saying it's like that's the future of labor relations. Well, you can't just throw people to the wolves and be like, crack on. You know, that just doesn't work. Yeah. And so it's about just opening that conversation up that's really what the study yeah. was supposed to be doing. And like, the response has been amazing to it because yeah. it's quite eye-catching. I mean, in a way, we almost chose the title in a way like to deliberately be provocative, like, can music make you sick? People yeah. are like, no. Yeah, yeah. But it, 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 people feel that it's yeah. at least contributing well, towards the, their the, illness. The res research and the results shows that exactly. it can. Exactly. It, it might not be a really direct way, but it's a build-up of a number of things, isn't it, that that's can it. really you know, affect someone in a serious way. Mm. Okay, so obviously there, there are changes further down the line that can be implemented to, mm. to help people. Mm. Do you think that will be something that will happen sooner rather than later? Or will mm. it be a process that kind of just drags on and never really gets, you know, I mean, the love and treatment that it should? The difficulty with it, like especially in music, is it's not a kind of unified place. There's like a whole series of different stakeholders with their own interests yeah. out to kind of take ownership of this thing, this mental health thing. Yeah. I mean, I know the charity that are funding that funded the research on the basis of the research we've done are implementing a number of changes that they're doing through their charity work to try and help people. Yeah. Um, and I know that there are other like service providers out there that are doing that. I mean, I think for me, the biggest one will be a kind of open, an openness and like a realization amongst people generally that this style of working, and in particular for musicians, but it is more, it is generalizable to the creative industries more generally and like flexible gig economy working, mm. are, um, you know, emotionally draining places to work in. And once that, is really there and that conversation is open i think that will lead to the kind of changes that it needs to be made mm. i mean like nobody you know you know it's a little bit like maybe this is a facile analogy i don't know but it's a little bit like um you know in, in you know in sort of industrial capitalism you had sort of cotton mills and stuff and they're sending children in to fix these weaving machines and yeah. they're slapping their fingers off and people eventually were like we need to pass some legislation about this because this is chopping children's fingers off you know we can't have this going on yeah well you know the kind of 
cotton mill of industrial capitalism has been replaced by the kind of MacBook in Starbucks of post, you know, late cap hyper capitalism that we're in now of neoliberalism, you know. So it's done this kind of industrialism's cotton mill, yeah, has evolved into neoliberalism's MacBook, and and so in this world there needs to be a reconfiguration of what we consider to be, you know, workplace dangers. Yeah. And the workplace dangers now aren't children's fingers being taken yeah. off by spinning saws. They're your brain being kicked yeah. and punched all the time by perennial uncertainty that just yeah. lingers over you. You know, this kind of post-war consensus that was reached that was all about kind of stability of working, long-term employment, housing. Okay, now, there's lots of things about that that people wouldn't want. Maybe people would say, well, I don't want to live in the same place I was brought up for 30 years. I don't want to live in the same house for 40 years. I want the ability to move around. It's like, yes. But this general erosion of all the security that you can be given in your life, yeah. there's no wonder people are anxious. I mean, most people that I know that are my age don't know what they will be doing in a year. I mean, they couldn't say to you, yeah, I'll still be in my job in a year. There's yeah. Very few people could say that. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, how do you plan to have a child? How do you plan to get a mortgage? Mm. How do you plan for anything? Yeah. And if that becomes the future of work, we are going to have a whole generation of people who are, you know, relentlessly anxious. Mm. They already are. And they already are, clearly. Yeah. That's, what, that's what they're telling us. And so it's more just an, like an evolution of an acknowledgement of, what these what these workplace stresses are yeah um i think that's i think that's sort of generally being t it's being talked about more and i think the work that me, that me and sally are doing is is part of that conversation that's mm -hmm. going on a bit more um and that certainly the link between sort of precarity and anxiety is one that's been being written about definitely for like the last five or six years since like guy standing wrote a lot about the pre precariat and precariousness yeah. um it's an ongoing conversation, but one that there's a sort of increasing body of evidence for. Um, so, yeah, that's what I think. The double-edged sword, isn't it? Because it's great to see these younger, I'm going to call them kids, but, hmm. you know, younger people. Younger young, than us. Yeah, younger than us. Younger hmm. kids um, hmm. going out there and, and actually trying to do their own thing and make their own way and find their own path. But hmm. like you said, on the flip side, there's lots of... Um, problems and issues that come with it in terms of, you know, finances and where you live in and what you're doing and mm. da, 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 da. so it kind of, you know, it's got that, that, that double edge that's mm. kind of on the flip side, it's good, mm. but it can also be quite bad, isn't it? And I would like, that's one of the things I would really like to see in the kind of discourse around entrepreneurship and entrepreneurialism more generally is a kind of openness about living Yeah, because it's almost like the elephant in the room that nobody mentions. Like, you know, like either with this podcast or other things that I listen to when people talking about what it is that they're doing. You know, all I ever think is, how can you do that? Yeah. You know, like monetarily, week to week, how do you do that? Mm. Because you can't be privately renting and yeah. just on your own hustling to, to pay that private rent. Yeah. <clears throat> it's just not possible. I mean, maybe if you lived out on the end of the district line somewhere, perhaps you could be privately renting somewhere for, maybe you could get a room for £500 a month or something, I don't know. But yeah. even that, I mean, you still need, after your travel, and even if you just eat a bag of chips every night for a quid, you still need £800 a month. Yeah. So, you know, you're like, oh, I'm just going to go and like start my clothing company. How? Like, and I would, and I'm supportive of doing it. That's, that's my whole thing. It's like entrepreneurialism. But 
there needs to be some honesty in that discussion of entrepreneurialism yeah. as well. That is like, you know, you can't just say, "Oh yeah, go and do this." Like, how will you go and do that? Yeah. If you got that, mine is all about like planning and business modeling and blah 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 blah. Like that's what that's what I do. But I do think there needs to be that kind of openness within that. Like I always said, I would never be able to do any of like the amazing stuff that I've done. I just mean amazing for me. I'm not going to mean like, oh, I'm amazing. Amazing stuff that I've done if I hadn't been at uni. Yeah. No way. Because, okay, it's a small bursary that they're giving you, but that's that's given me everything, being yeah. able to do that. I don't know what I would have done without that. I'd have had, I would have had to have gone and got a full-time job. I'd have got, I mean, I actually remember filling out the, after I finished my master's, before I got my funding to do the PhD, I remember filling out the uh, a job application for the graduate scheme at Rothschild Investment Bank. Yeah. It's like, yo, I was looking back on that the other day, like, man, I could have been in like Rothschild Investment Bank. Like, no, I'm glad I'm not, but I had to live. Yeah, of course. What's the best bit of advice anyone's ever given you? Um, I mean, I, I I like it, but I feel almost guilty like saying it to students now, but like, don't like, don't work hard, work smart. Yeah. I like that piece. I think I actually might have seen that from like, you know, like Hyper Frank, which called Laura Brosnan. Yeah. I've, I think I've even heard it from her at some point, but I like that um, because you sort of strategically do what the things that you need to do to get to where you need to get yeah, exactly. to, you know, and that's, that's why having these like long-term plans for me, I'm off, I often do this, like have a kind of three or four year plan. Like I'm in my house now and I'm thinking, right, what's my next mortgage going to be in three years? Or even when I was at uni, I was like, okay, so I'm in my second year now. I've got what, like seven years, eight years to go. What am I going to do during these periods of time? If it comes through and doing what you need to do to get there. Um, I don't know, it's just, I mean, my other one really is like, don't, f- I mean, maybe it sounds silly, but if there's something that you're really, really good at and you do it well, just do it. It sounds but like, mm. you know, I, I know what I'm good at. You know, I know plenty of things that I am not good at, right? I can't, I couldn't paint. I couldn't do DIY. I couldn't fix a car. I couldn't like lead a seminar on being friendly with loads of people. I couldn't, there's loads of things that I would be unable to do, but I can write an essay at three o'clock yeah. in the morning really well, Yeah. you know, and I can write and I can think really well. Well, that's what I do then. Yeah. It's like, I mean, remember when I was at uni, there were, people would say things like, yeah, you, what you want to do, right? You, you want to, you want to turn up at like 10 o'clock and like, you want to leave at like five because it will feel like you've kind of done a working day. But I used to, um, I used to, be in bed my missus would fall asleep and i would sit up and i would work from like 11 p.m until 7 a.m she would get up and go to work then i would go to sleep and then when she would get back from work then i would wake up have food she would go to sleep then i would sit and work because that would that would be when i would probably did that for two years longer than two years because that's when i worked well i don't feel bad about that it's Mm. like that's that's what that's what you do um yeah i think probably those things really yeah and this kind of ties into Next question. And I've got only a couple more. Um, so if you could roll back the years mm. and give your younger self some advice, mm. three things to start doing mm. and one thing to stop doing, mm-hmm. what would they be? I mean, the thing to, I don't know whether this is something to start doing or to stop doing, but I would say, um, I would just say that you're all right. You yeah. don't need to try and, want to make other people like you 
I always said, like, if I had a kid, that's really something I would want them to be okay with who they are. Yeah. Like, if you're a bit goony, be a bit goony. Like, that, you, you're not going to make yourself cool. Like, and, you know, I used to, like, want to be a particular, like, type of person. And, you know, like, oh, I'll play football and do this. It's like, that's not who I am. I don't play football. I'm not, like, yeah. going out with them lads. I just, like, no, I was skateboarding. And, like, that's what I always wanted to do. Yeah. And then when I was older, then I could be whoever it is I wanted to be. I mean, that would be my first one. Um, I think what else would be like a good piece of advice really to do? I mean, to be honest, lots of the advice I probably just followed, so it wouldn't even need to be that I would need to tell myself to do something different. Listen to your mum. That would be a good one for me. I mean, more just because my mum is like, is just on top of things and smart. So, you know, if your mum's a bit of a dickhead, then maybe don't. But, um, you know, when they say things to you like, you should really do this because in mm. a few years you're really going to be glad that you've got this. Yeah. When you're 19, you think you're grown. You're like, oh, whatever. You know, yeah, well, yeah. what do you know? Well, they do know some things because they're still here. They're yeah. still, you know, and my mum is really successful. And, and you know, I'm, she was the one who was saying to me like, oh, you know, you should go to Cambridge. I didn't want to go to Cambridge. I was like, it's full of knobs. <laughs> it's full of really knobbish, like rich people. And yeah. why do I want to go there? You want to go there. That's exactly where you want to go. And then you do. Oh, don't drop out and just do music. Like, focus on doing, get, get the uni stuff behind you and stuff as well. Okay, yeah, you know, that's a smart one for yeah. me because, you know, they know what they're on about, really. So that would be one. Um, like, get cracking on the thing that you want to do. The earlier you can get cracking on it, the better. I didn't really start doing music like properly till I was like 21. Mm. So, and that, I remember at the time thinking, oh, that's quite late. Cause like around that time, like Chipmunk was come out and he was like, he was like oopsie daisy and he was like yeah. 17 or whatever it was, you know? Yeah. And I was like, man, I'm an old man, like already. Yeah. And he was doing freestyles at yeah. like one extra when he was like 13. Yeah, it? exactly. Like the Ice Kid stuff and all that. Yeah. So, and I the whole time was like, oh, yeah, I had the fear about it. Um, so yeah, cracking on with stuff soon is good. And also at the time that you're doing that, like like be aware of the fact that some of the early things that you do will be shit. That's fine. You know, really, I used to tell people when they were starting to make music, I was like, record the 20 best songs you could ever make. Like mm. put everything into them, like the best choruses ever. And then like, come and see me. And I was like, and then on the day that you come and see me, I'm going to tell you to throw them all in the bin and go ahead. Yeah. Because you'll think they're great. You'll be like, I've made the best song ever. And in five years, you will think it's total trash. But that's your experience, right? Mm. You just got to get go through that and just throw it all in the bin, and that's that's a that can be a really good thing for you to do, yeah. I think. Um, Last one. Hmm. Have somebody whose opinion you value above all other people's, and that you really, truly, truly listen to. Like having that person is is everything. Because, you know, I've had the whole time I've been... So I've, I've been with my missus now for, for 14 years. Wow. So I've always had her. And, and if, I, if I showed her something, she was like, that sucks, dude. Mm. I would be like, wow, maybe it does suck. Yeah, Whereas yeah. most people, especially when you're like a creative, kooky person, your whole raison d'etre is you don't listen to anyone. Yeah. People would be like, no, nah, you don't want to do that. I'd be like, fuck you. Like, no, nah, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm like mini Steve Jobs. I can do whatever I want, you know? Yeah. So you, in a way, they tell you, like, entrepreneurialism is like, don't listen to anybody. But actually... If you have somebody who, whose opinion you really value and who is consistently there with you the whole time, it's so important because there's you know voices that you 
trust and believe and want to listen to are really rare. I mean, the other thing as well that I've thought now is this would be more of an advice for like an older me instead of a younger me is believe in someone. Yeah. Everyone be- needs somebody to like believe in them. And I don't think that's really, you know, this whole notion of like self-starting entrepreneurialism of, of the self assumes that it individualizes achievement in a way that overlooks the fact that having somebody believe in you is such a huge thing. Like I remember at school, like my mum the whole time was like, oh yeah, you're going to go to Cambridge. And I was like, I wouldn't be clever enough to get into Cambridge. There's no way I can do that. And then one day, one of my teachers in economics said to me like, you could probably apply to Cambridge. And I was like, oh my God. Oh wow. Like maybe I could like, oh right. Okay. Fair enough. And then at uni, I had a, like a director of studies who was like, you know, if you don't want to do this work, don't do it. Like you'd be fine. Like, I know that you're good. I know you've got this. And then when I was doing my PhD, I remember my supervisor saying things to me. He was like, if you don't want to come in every week and chat to me, don't do it. That's fine. Like, give me in some work by this day and do you in the way that you need to do. And you've, you've got this. That's like priceless. And now in my job, like, you know, the, the, like, especially Sally, like the person I work with at Westminster was like, when I just finished my PhD, she was like, you can deliver this big time. Like, I think you could be sick at doing this. And I know that, you we, you know, we can do this on this and do this course and all this sort of stuff. Like, that is invaluable. Having Same at Goldsmiths as well. I have a, there's a, a woman who works with me at Goldsmiths who's always like, yo, you're, you're really good, like, at this. Yeah. And that is invaluable to that. And I would like to think that, you know, if I, you know, I say when I'm older, maybe I'm, maybe I'm older now, I don't know. But, um, but that's a good thing to have with people because everyone needs someone to say that to them, you know, and to feel yeah. that they're in their corner. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, those things, I reckon. Nice. Um, okay, so final question. Mm. What would be your ultimate happiness goal? Uh, I, I mean, I probably, I mean, not a million miles off it now, probably. I mean, like, literally, I think if my flat was a house, like, yeah. literally, if I had a whole house, I think I would be pretty close to it. Yeah. Like, and, I don't know, yeah, it, if, I, if I was able to have kids and that was something that happened with me and my missus, then great, then that, that would be amazing too. But I would like to just still be doing, I mean, to do the thing that you're genuinely interested in, the whole, and get money for doing that thing you're interested in. And, you know, if it's good money, then, like, even better. Mm. That is it. That's it. That is it. Really, I don't really think. I mean, what more is there? Yeah. Yeah. Like a house in London, or like a, or at least like a big, like a decent sized flat in London. Um, zone two west, please. Um, uh, yeah, house in Norfolk. A uh, small flat in Paris. That would do me yeah. quite nicely. If I, I could most get most people quite nicely. Yeah. Though. If I could get that <laughs> three, that would be that would be pretty strong for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to me, like the ultimate, I mean, it sounds, it's funny because this is like a dreamers podcast thing about work and in a lot of ways it is about work, isn't it? But like the most happy, I mean, the most happy for me is just being just with me and my missus. That's, that to me is the most happy and really in a way, anything that gives me the maximum amount of time with her is what's good for me. Yeah. That's great. Cool. Right. So before we wrap up, Mm. No pun intended. Mm. Um, can you let the people know who are listening where they can find you online, where they can read your paper if they want to read your paper, mm-hmm. if they want to hear your lectures or anything? Yeah. Like, 
where can I, where can I get you? Okay, cool. So, um, I mean, my my sort of lecturing George is the Twitter is at Dr G Musgrave, M U S G R A V E, and my music stuff on Twitter would be at Context with two underscores because it used to be Context MC and I had to get rid of that. And um, my paper, you would search for "Can Music Make You Sick" in Google. If you put it in those speech bubbles so yeah. that it keeps all the words together, um, the paper will be published up on there. And I think it probably, if you, I mean, I have, I probably haven't done it for eighteen months or two years. I did it when I first got my job to make sure that my name was coming up in Google. But I'm sure if you put Dr. George Musgrave, I don't know how many Dr. George Musgraves there are, but. There was one. There was one who was like an Australian tribes leader. When I looked about eight, when I first got my job, I looked it up. But I'm sure if you put Dr. George Musgrave in Google, there would be some stuff that would come up. I'm going to do that right now. Yeah, tell me what comes up. This is where something you. really horrible comes <laughs> up at the beginning from your past. Yeah, exactly. So Dr. George Musgrave. The first thing that comes up, Dr. George Musgrave, Goldsmiths, University of London. There we go. Your Twitter account, mm-hmm. a Wikipedia account, which may or may not be you. That can't no, be me. No, because he was an elder of the. Cuckoo Taipan, that's the, one. the famous Australian bush. He's the one that came up when I searched when I got my job. The rest <laughs> is you. So you've overtaken him now as the, the most famous, <laughs> the Dr. most famous George. Dr. George Musgrave. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. George Musgrave on Google. Yeah, yeah. So that would be the best way, I guess. Sweet, cool. Um, cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening in. Um, get you know, hit us both up on Twitter, on Instagram, in the comment section. Um, you know. George here, context, we're going to call him. He's, you know, got lots of knowledgeable information in his brain. Mm, so I like do, to think so. do make sure you, you question him and find stuff out because there's, there's a lot up there. Um, and yeah, if there's stuff that you liked here, make sure you share it with a friend. If you think there's something that they're going to be interested in or like to hear, then, you know, hit that share button and make sure you share it with them. And again, thank you for listening. You know, it's an absolute honor. Thank you for having me, sir. No worries. Well, there you have it, guys. That's Context Story. Um, As you would have heard, you know, there's some really amazing stuff in there through the work he's done at university and the research paper he's put together around music and mental health and the findings of that, which are, you know, phenomenal, to be honest. Um, You also get a real sense of his honesty and his his, um, willingness to talk about the struggles he's gone through, you know, owing money to people, living on on next to nothing as, as money and having his student loan cover his living wage, which is, you know, obscene for someone who, who's living in London and pursuing a career in music. It, it, it's really, really crazy stuff, but it's some really good stuff in there. So hope you, you've got a lot out of that. Please hit both of us up on Twitter. Um, let us know your thoughts. Um, you can tweet myself at I am Alex Manzi. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes as that's where all of the episodes will be uploaded first before anywhere else. So if you want to be the first to listen to an episode, that's where it will be. And if you do get the time, it would be amazing, amazing, amazing to, to if you could leave a review on there as well. Because it's nice to hear what you guys think and it's good to hear those, those bits of feedback from yourselves. Uh, so thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.